Welcome to the New and Chess podcast. You're listening to a story from the Essentials of Sonko, collected portraits and tales of a bygone chess era by Grandmaster Jenna Sosonko. Since the 1980s, he has written extensively for New and Chess magazine. Sosonko's chess writings, rather than being technical, chronicle the lives of the former and current top players with whom he has crossed paths. Today's episode is about Tony Miles. Tony Miles was the first Englishman to earn the Grandmaster title. His most notable game is a win with Black over then world champion Anatoly Karpov. In this game, Miles astounded the chess world with his opening move, 1A6. Enjoy this and other stories in today's reading, narrated by professional voice actor and amateur chess player Nick Murphy, from The Essential Sasunko, Chapter 14, Tony Miles. Tony Miles, 1955-2001 to 2001. The Cat That Walked By Himself At the tournament in Nottingham in 1936, Capablanca and Alexander were analysing together the game that they had just finished. "'Take a look at this!' exclaimed the English master, cheerfully looking around at those watching. "'Capablanca caught me, and with what a move! Amazing!' he continued, looking admiringly at his famous opponent. The two-times British champion, Connell Hugh O'Donnell Alexander, went to King Edward's school in Birmingham, in which several decades later, the future first English grandmaster, Tony Miles, also spent his school years. Alexander won the British Schoolboys Championship in 1926, and Miles won an analogous event more than four decades later. But how different was their approach to chess and to the greats of the chess world? There can be no doubt that if Miles had had to play the famous maestro, he would not have showered the legendary champion with compliments, either after the game or even mentally during it. More probably, he would have thought, Well, hold on, you beauty. Let's see what you're really made of. Let's test your much-vaunted intuition. For the pre-war generation of English players, when sitting down to play against grandmasters, the limit of their dreams was a draw. Their rare wins can be counted on the fingers of one hand, and besides, they were mostly the result of their famous opponents playing unjustifiably for a win, not wishing to concede even half a point to these obvious amateurs and overstepping the mark in search of victory. After the war, the situation changed little, Soviet grandmasters dominated in the world arena and kept generations of English players in a state of unlimited respect. This continued until Tony Miles appeared on the scene. He was as though born for chess. He had an innate sense of confidence in himself, which is so necessary for successful play at high level, not a superficial one, developed by autogenic training sessions or visits to a psychologist, but an inborn one. That boundless belief in yourself under any circumstances and despite anything. His passion for the game and for winning pushed everything in his life into the background. This obsession, this passion, distinguished Tony Miles from other English players. He defeated... Boris Spassky, Mikhail Tal, Anatoly Karpov, Vasily Smyslov, Viktor Korshnoy, Ifim Geller and Lev Pologievsky. 
One distinguished grandmaster from the Soviet Union complained at the time, I like all the players from England except Miles. He does not treat me with the respect I am used to. His entire chess career can be arbitrarily divided into three periods. The first, beginning 1968, when he became British under-14 champion, then growing successes in weekend and open tournaments, culminating in his brilliant victory in the World Junior Championship in the Philippines and the seizure of the Grandmaster title. He became a Grandmaster at the age of 20, achieving his final norm at a tournament in Dubna, in the Soviet Union, a barrier which yielded to only a few in those times. If you are successful, please send us a telegram, he was asked before this trip by the Secretary of the British Chess Federation. The telegram which arrived at the Federation contained only one word, a cable, Tony Miles, and signified not only that Miles received the sum of £5,000, the prize offered by the financier Jim Slater to the first British Grandmaster, but also victory in the imaginary competition for this prize with his rivals Bill Hartston and Raymond Keane. The appearance of the first English Grandmaster was the start of a big chess boom in the country. Tony Miles became the leader of a generation of players. Jonathan Spielman, John Nunn, Michael Steen, Jonathan Mestel, which brought England out of the chess wilderness and transformed it into a powerful chess state, one of the strongest in the world. The second period of Miles' career began with a joint victory with Korchnoi at the IBM tournament in Amsterdam in 1976 and continued for roughly ten years. Miles was then one of the strongest players in the world and for a time the best player in the West. During this decade he gained numerous resounding victories – the most impressive were at the Interpolis tournaments of 1984 and 1985, the strongest events in the world at that time. In this latter tournament, he played lying on a massage table, but despite the pain and the physical discomfort, was he really so unhappy with the situation? A challenge was thrown down to the remaining participants in the tournament, some of whom reacted angrily to the strange playing situation, which brought chess onto the front pages of the newspapers. But the main thing, as Miles himself wrote in New in Chess magazine, was this. There are few things that motivate me more than a challenge, but there is one, and that is an impossible challenge. From this moment on, I needed no further incentive. The impossible challenge was clear. To win Interpolis despite being a virtual cripple. The third concluding stage of his career began with his loss in a match to Kasparov in Basel in 1986 by a crushing score, a half a point to five and a half points, after which his success curve took a downwards turn. In his last years, when he had lost much of his practical strength and was condemned to playing in open tournaments, he no longer frequently met strong opponents. I am sure, however that even those who outrated him in that final period of his life knew that they, when sitting down at the board with Tony Miles, had to be very much on their guard. How did he play? In his approach to chess, one could notice the features of players of such different strength and style as Basman, Larsen and Anderson. From the first, 
he had elements of originality and eccentricity. From the second, fighting spirit, an uncompromising attitude and a complete lack of respect for acknowledged authorities. And from Ulf Anderson, a brilliant endgame technique. He could transform even a tiny advantage into a point. He had the patience, energy and desire to do this. I think that Miles began studying chess with the end game, and not with the opening. In contrast to the overwhelming majority of players, he was not greatly interested in this part of the game. He always regarded the opening as a prelude to the middle game, to the end game, to a prolonged battle with inventions and trickery. In their time, experienced trainers in the Soviet Union advised their pupils to keep a special notebook where they could enter unusual manoeuvres, non-routine decisions, original plans and paradoxical combinations. From the games of Tony Miles, you could gather material for more than one such notebook. I think this was most typical of him, to think up something unusual at the board, to devise a new and original idea. It was even better if at the same time this idea led the opponent away from his well-trodden theoretical paths and caused him mental discomfort. In one of our games in Tilburg, after 1, c4, e5, Tony replied, queen c2, and with a grin looked at me. That's the end of your theory. This move doesn't lose, and as for the white pieces, what significance does that have? In the initial stage of the game, he preferred to go his own way. He also did this in his best years, but then this became a necessity, since Tony never liked working on the opening, especially in the way that modern professional chess demands. Effectively, he tried to play Fischer chess, although the pieces on the board stood on their usual classical positions. In his last years, he called representatives of the young generation database kids, probably not thinking about the fact that these were the children of the children of Informator, as a quarter of a century earlier Tigran Petrosian had called the young. I'm sure, however, that Tony Miles did not come under this definition. In reply to 1e4, he could, depending on his mood, bring out either his queen's or his king's knight, playing black on the second move, and even on the first he could prepare the fianchetto of his queen's bishop, a strategy unequivocally condemned by the classical opening guides, and moreover, he was not afraid to do this at top level. The variations employed by Miles often lacked that academic foundation of the opening classics, who from the very first move set up a solid edifice. But Tony did not, in fact, aim for this. These variations served him for quite concrete aims, success at the given moment in this specific game, in this tournament, because Tony Miles very much loved chess, but even more, he loved winning. Just as a runner who regularly engages in this occupation develops in his blood a special substance to which he becomes accustomed, so also for Tony Miles, this substance entered his blood with the starting of the clocks. He regarded chess as a wrestling match on 64 squares, not classical wrestling, but freestyle. He did not belong to that small category of chess professionals for whom the following are completely unacceptable, agreeing to a draw before a game, 
offering a draw when it's not your turn to move, offering a draw two or three times in succession, playing a series of moves in the opponent's time trouble, offering a draw in an obviously inferior position, or bashing the clock with a piece that has just been captured. Over a quarter of a century, we played about 20 games in various countries and on various continents. He won four and I won three. I can picture him entering the playing hall and heading for our board. He takes off his rather large watch and lays it down beside his score sheet. Within a few moments, normal time will come to a stop and another reading of it will begin, determined by the position on the hands on both faces of the chess clock. This time will be recorded by him on his score sheet. As far as I remember, he always did this. During the game, his watch will lie on the score sheet itself. He had the habit of first writing down his move and only then making it on the board. And when taking the most important decisions, he would once again lift up the watch and, defending with the back of his hand against the opponent's possible glance, check once again the recorded move. Now, he arranges his knights side-on to the opponent, as they are depicted in the chess diagrams of books. Then he says, Jadoub, correcting the ideally placed pieces. This phrase and this movement will be repeated by him several times in the game. The round begins. He takes up his fighting position, bending cat-like and leaning forward. He holds his temples in his hands, all concentration and intensity, his gaze directed at the board. From time to time he straightens up and, throwing back his long hair, again assumes his former position. On the wrist of one hand is a gold chain with the inscription Tony, and on one of the fingers of his other hand is a ring. Now he takes out a large handkerchief, and despite the absence of any cold, he begins noisily blowing his nose, periodically repeating this procedure during the game. His opponent is engrossed in thought. He stands up with a girdling movement, pulling up his trousers. The time has come to drink something, and he already has a glass in his hands. The two-litre jug of milk, always standing in the refrigerator in the playing room during the tournament in Tilburg, would gradually empty towards the end of the round. From time to time, he belches, sometimes covering his mouth with his hand, sometimes not. Occasionally, he casts brief glances at his opponent. In them there is everything. Smile, triumph, anxiety, surprise, suspicion, depending on the position on the board. He never looks, as timid souls do, into the eyes of colleagues who stop by on his table in order to read the evaluation of the positions on the board in their eyes. He's accustomed to relying on himself alone, and it does not concern him what others think. Time trouble arrives. Raising himself slightly on his chair, he spreads his hands, urging back those standing around his board who have entered his field of view, his living space, participants, arbiters, demonstrators... Play has gone deep into the endgame, and his pawn has reached the penultimate rank. Now he will promote it. To a rook, to a bishop. This occurred more than once in his games, including ours. Now all the pieces have been exchanged. The last pawn has disappeared from the board. But he likes positions when only the kings remain on the board. The game has ended.
The watch is removed from the score sheet, and now it is again on his wrist, and normal time has resumed. In analysis, after the game, he was never condescending towards his opponent, making little jokes from time to time. Exactly the same way was the writing style of Tony Miles, the author of numerous articles and commentaries. The distinguishing quality of them was the specific humour, scepticism, irony and self-irony. Merciless in the evaluation of his opponent, but also of himself. He naturally avoided quoting anyone. In chess, as in life, no authorities existed. About one chess book, Miles wrote a review which consisted of two words. Utter crap. He was a master of the laconic barb, the sarcastic remark, and he was never at a loss for words. The 13-year-old Stuart Conquest, when meeting at the board with the famous Grandmaster, in a position from the Catalan opening, gave a queen check on move five and childishly announced, Check! Miles' reaction followed immediately. Is it? In one of the New York Opens, Boris Gulko started extremely badly, and after the third round, he was trailing his wife, Grandmaster Anna Akshamarova, by a full one and a half points. Are you also playing in this tournament? greeted Miles, when Gulko appeared on the stage in the vicinity of the boards where the leaders were meeting. How did you find she played? someone asked the same Gulko after a game with Sofia Polga. She made mistake after mistake, he heatedly replied, after he had saved a lost ending, having overlooked something in a winning position. She made mistake after mistake, which probably explains why he survived two pawns down in an opposite bishop ending, wrote Tony in New in Chess magazine. I first saw Miles when he was 18 years old. With his long hair down to his shoulders and his delicate skin, he in some way resembled Oscar Wilde's Bosey. Then his appearance changed. It acquired something cat-like in his face, in his way of moving, and he began to resemble one of the musketeers, first Aramis and then Porthos. In the last period of his life, he put on a great deal of weight and his face became puffy, but there was still the long hair down to the shoulders, and in his entire appearance there was something of the captain of a pirate ship, from a story by Robert Louis Stevenson, all that was missing being the parrot on his shoulder and the bottle of rum. This podcast is brought to you by DGT, the chess innovators. DGT designs, develops, manufactures and distributes a wide range of chess products worldwide, such as digital chess clocks and game timers, as well as electronic chess boards, chess computers and chess accessories. DGT has devoted the last 30 years to innovating chess with technology. To find your nearest DGT dealer, please visit our website at dgt.nl. If people in the enormous world of professional and amateur chess are separated into two categories, those few about whom they talk and those who talk, Tony Miles would certainly belong to the first category. His adventures, crankiness and eccentricity became known in this artificial world where everyone knows everything about one another. For all that, it did not interest him in the slightest what they said about him or what they thought in the British Chess Federation, in FIDE, 
what Karpov did not like, or how Kasparov might react. He was not afraid to appear ridiculous, arriving as trainer of the Australian ladies' team at the Olympiad in Manila, or playing, lying on a massage table, as he did in Tilburg, or simply on a mattress, laid out for him in the corner of the hall at an open tournament in Ostend one week later. When travelling one day to the playing hall in Tilburg, Miles decided simply to lie on the back seat of the taxi, trying to find the optimal position for his spine. I decided it was time to forget about appearances, he later wrote in his report. Appearances? All his life he was not greatly concerned about them. Tony learned to play chess when he was five years old. Then the game was forgotten and a real interest in it was aroused only when someone brought a chess set to the primary school he attended. Had it not been for that, he later remembered, I would probably never have taken it up. He completed one year at the Department of Mathematics in Sheffield, after which he switched completely to professional chess. Later he recalled that he had been bored at the lectures. Here there were no opponents to beat, not like chess, I need a direct challenge. For his services to chess, Sheffield University awarded him an honorary degree, M.A. There was some disagreement about this decision. Some insisted on awarding the former student Miles the honorary title, but others demanded that he be excluded from the list for negligence. Tony did not like ceremonies and had an ironic regard for such procedures. Well known is his speech at the closing ceremony of the tournament in Brussels in 1986. I hate this sort of appearance but here I will be brief. In this tournament, there was nothing that I could criticise. In a word of thanks in Sheffield, he said that for him, it was a great shock to receive the honorary title, since he had not been a good student. But he also did not hide the fact that he was very pleased for his services to be marked in this way. He did not receive an academic education, but, as in chess, he did not really need it and he did not experience any particular piety towards his fellow grandmasters who had graduated from Oxford or Cambridge. And although his relations with the future king of English chess, Nigel Short, were frequently troubled, Miles himself admitted that Nigel, and subsequently Mickey Adams, were closer to him in spirit than the Oxbridge set. In the mid-1980s, I did not yet know about the details of his conflict with Raymond Keane and with the British Chess Federation, a conflict which grew and took on serious forms, an escalation of all these problems and which certainly played a major role in his very serious nervous breakdown, his grave mental illness. In the autumn of 1987, for the anniversary of the Hilversum Chess Club in Holland, Ian Rogers, John van der Weyl, Tony Miles and I were invited. The programme of the festival included both consultation games and simultaneous displays, which the Grandmasters gave against the club members and against each other. From his very arrival in Holland, a strangeness in Miles's behaviour was noticeable, and it became even more obvious on the day when play took place. Going out into the audience, watching the simultaneous display, Tony took a cup of tea from one of the spectators and began slowly stirring it with a pawn he had removed from the board. In reply to the perplexed glances, he explained that the cup was Raymond Keane, and the sandwich which another visitor was holding was David Anderton. During the display, Tony suddenly offered draws on all boards. In the event of refusal, 
only Ian Rogers agreed, he immediately resigned the gains. At the time, it seemed like the crankiness of an already eccentric maestro, and not a severe form of mental illness, which it in fact turned out to be. On returning to England, Tony was arrested by the police when he tried to climb over the barriers to 10 Downing Street. Whether it was to explain to the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, the incorrectness of her Cabinet's policies, or to complain about Raymond Keane, who, as he asserted, had made several attempts on his life. On another occasion, he was arrested for hurling stones at a passing lorry. Tony Miles became a patient at a psychiatric clinic and added his name to the already considerable list of chess players burdened with mental problems. The doctors advised him to give up playing forever, to avoid stressful situations and to abandon the world of chess. Need it be said that this advice was as correct as it was useless? And indeed, was it correct? After all, it is well known that for the organism of people who have mental problems, the benefit from the fact that they gave up smoking is cancelled out by an aggravation of their overall condition. Apathy, emotional reticence, withdrawal and further nervous breakdowns. And Miles continued to play and play and play. He always played frequently, very frequently. Late in the evening, after the closing ceremony of a major international tournament, he climbed into his Mercedes, Germany was awaiting, and a game in the Bundesliga. And within a couple of days, an open tournament in Mexico was starting. His next breakdown occurred a few years later in China. A different, unusual country, different people, and an incomprehensible language. The beds in the hotel rooms were low, and Tony, who had already surprised the hosts with his behaviour, requested that it be raised. When two of the hotel staff carried out his request, it transpired that the guest was not looking for anything under the bed, but after lying down on the floor, asked for it to be put back. At the end of that ill-fated tournament in China, when Cathy Rogers phoned to ask him whether he would be taking part in an open tournament beginning with a few days in Australia, Miles gave a positive answer, and in reply to the question of when he would be arriving, he said, Yesterday. He never appeared at that tournament. By that time, Tony had left England. He tried to live in America, and then in Australia. In America, he unsuccessfully took part in the championship of the country, and in Australia, he regularly played in tournaments, even intending to represent the country. During this Australian part of his life, he got married for the second time to a very young woman, an Australian of Chinese descent, who had arrived with her family from Malaysia. This marriage ended soon in divorce, a very difficult divorce, which aggravated his mental problems and created material ones. It is considered that his attempts at emigration were associated with his mental condition, his defeat in the match to Kasparov in 1986, and last but not least, the fact that he had lost his leading position in English chess after the emergence of Nigel Short. This is probably all so, although the inclination towards changes of place to constant movement were installed in his restless genes, and his profession, of course, merely aided this. In the late 1970s, when there was not even a cloud in the sky of his career, he once said that he would not be averse to moving to France. Do you speak French? I asked him. Un peu, j'ai étudié français à l'école. 
Tony replied with dignity and with an accent that would have prompted a puzzled quoi from any Frenchman. The problems of his relations with Nigel Short goes beyond the bounds of pure chess. It's much broader and reduces to the question, how should a sportsman feel when he has to concede the leading role? The role to which he is accustomed and which appears reserved for him forever. When he becomes number two, three, four, when he does not receive invitations to tournaments to which he is accustomed, or when he altogether fails to get into the team, this phenomenon is not known in social life, where positions, one, are lost only as a consequence of something extraordinary, and a deserved pension and respect normally crown the end of one's life. Nigel Short was only ten when he first met Tony Miles in an open tournament, and Miles was the first Grand Master whom the 14-year-old Nigel defeated in 1979. It cannot be said that Tony was my friend, Short recounts. For some time relations were bad, even very bad, although we always felt some kind of connection between us. When I was very young, Tony would jealously watch my games. That kid wants my job, he once said. It was not easy for him playing me, and I won against him quite often. In 1986, our relations hit a low point, when Miles, as a member of the selection committee, put himself on board one for the national team at the Olympiad in Dubai, although by that time my rating was some 50 points higher than his. I also remember that Kasparov was completely amazed then that I was not playing on board one. At the time, I was very offended by this, and I have to admit that even now I have a feeling of irritation when I talk about it. Incidentally, our team played excellently there, but we scored all our points on boards 2-5, to five, whereas our board 1 suffered a fiasco. In my opinion, with his behaviour at the board, he quite deliberately disturbed his opponent, and he was not above using some slightly dubious means, and was not averse to cheating. Later, our relations improved, and in Alista, for example, we spent quite a lot of time together, often laughing to tears, Tony had a rather well-developed sense of humour, and I always gained pleasure from reading his articles. They were never dry, and he wrote them in his special style. I mixed with him frequently in recent times, thus we spent quite a long time discussing play on the internet with Bobby Fisher. For us, it was clear that we were playing one and the same opponent, and it was a very courteous, erudite person, well-developed in every sense, whoever he was in the end. Just two days before the European Championship in Leon, he complained that they had not included him in the team, but preferred young Luke McShane, although his, Miles's rating was higher. He very much wanted to play. During the last quarter of a century, England has produced a number of strong grandmasters, but only three of them, as it seems to me, have been leaders. Tony Miles, Nigel Short and, more recently, Michael Adams. I think, incidentally, that the reason for the improvement in relations between Miles and Short in recent years can be explained simply. The rising star of Michael Adams. Thus, after the appearance of a new first wife in the Sultan's harem, one can see, walking hand in hand and harmoniously chatting with each other, the second and third wives, who once lived in bitter rivalry. In 1995, in the zonal tournament in Linares, Miles was leading after the sixth round, demonstrating solid, confident play. In the seventh round, 
He lost to Ileskus, effectively while still in the opening. That evening I met Tony in the hotel corridor. It's all over, I don't have any chances, were his surprisingly uncustomary words. What do you mean? I said. You're still in a good position, and your plus score is quite sufficient to qualify. You don't understand, he smiled ironically. I can't sleep at all. I've already phoned my doctor in Birmingham. You don't know what it is not to sleep. From this moment, the tournament saw another Miles. The point was not even that he lost once more and did not win once. It was obvious that not only was he no longer able to concentrate, he could not even think anymore. He had acquired the shakes, which are familiar to all chess players. He could no longer cope with the excitement and keep the game under control. In his collapse, in the decisive encounter with van der Steren, where he would have been satisfied with a draw as white, Miles played instantly, and already, after 15 moves, his position was in ruins. Within a few moves later, Miles resigned. The impression was that he had already reconciled himself to the inevitable, and that he had not expected any other outcome. In his last years, Tony, who had once received appearance fees that considerably exceeded those of his fellow grandmasters and were perhaps inferior only to those of Karpov, agreed to play in open tournaments in conditions which had young players shaking their heads in surprise. I think that they simply did not understand what it signified for Miles not to play at all, to step out of the ring, to change the way of life to which he had become accustomed during his 25-year intensive career of a professional chess player. A few years ago, Miles proposed to the boss of the pause team that he should play for his club on the following conditions. If he did not score 90% over the season, he would not demand any fee for his efforts. Anyone who is familiar with the standard of play in the Bundesliga will understand what such an offer signifies, and therefore it came as no surprise that at the end of the season, Miles did not receive a single Fennig. In the late 1970s, a few hours before the first round in Lone Pine, after a lengthy flight from Europe to Los Angeles and a five-hour bus ride to the small Californian town, I met Tony in the main and effectively only street of the capital of what was then the strongest open in the world, and I began complaining of tiredness and of aeroplane noise in my ears. Miles merely shrugged his shoulders. This condition was customary for him. The places where Tony lived, Birmingham, Andorra, Paws, were merely bivouacs where he could pause for breath in more customary surroundings before his real home, the hotel bed, the airplane seat, the train bunk or ship cabin, the car seat. From the names of the towns and countries in which he played chess, one can study geography and a line connecting all the places he visited would describe a curious curve encompassing the earth many times. And, of course, it was all the same to him where he played, in Cuba, Colombia, New Zealand, China, Holland, Egypt, or the Soviet Union. During the Olympiad in Alista in 1998, he was making plans to play in a tournament in Iraq, first by plane to Damascus, then by camel or yak to Baghdad. The greater part of Miles's career fell in the pre-computer, pre-internet times, and a future biographer will face a great deal of work looking for his games in the archives of the Egyptian, Colombian 
and Chinese chess federations. His talent was very natural, native, and was combined with an enormous vital strength, which was in him and was sensed almost physically. He was not averse to a drink, he ate a great deal, and was trained by his lengthy travels to be not particularly squeamish. Stuart Conquest remembers how once he shared a cabin with Tony on a boat from England to the continent. His snoring was so deafening that I couldn't shut my eyes, so I got dressed and went to the bar. Miles was twice married. He had girlfriends, good acquaintances and rare friends, or those who consider themselves as such. Despite this, he was, of course, a lone wolf, with his inner world, his complexes and his problems... Like every Englishman, he was slightly eccentric, but he wanted to appear more eccentric than he was in actual fact. At the end of his life, he returned to his native Birmingham. Travelling the world, he had heard plenty of broken English. He himself remained an Englishman, and not only by his love for cricket, which he retained from childhood. It is noteworthy that Miles did not like London and never lived there, in contrast to the majority of English chess players, or perhaps precisely for this reason. 1982, Indonesia. A free day in a tournament lasting 25 rounds. An excursion to Borobudur, one of the seven wonders of the world. The sun is burning down mercilessly. The fair-haired Tony is wearing a Panama hat, but he is already quite badly burnt. He is keeping apart, of course, from the rest of the chess caravan. There are hundreds of Buddhas sitting in various poses. One of them is a tourist attraction, a hollow statue in which you are supposed to stick your hand while making a wish. I notice that Miles stands for a long time by the statue, to the displeasure of a group of Americans waiting their turn, headed by a guide with an unopened parasol lifted high over his head. Finally... Tony moves away from the figure sitting in the lotus position and notices me. Covering his mouth with the back of his hand, as if he wants to pass on something confidential, he whispers, I couldn't think of a single wish. In 1980, at the European Team Championship in Skara, Miles won against world champion Karpov by replying to the move of the king's pawn with one A6. Jonathan Spielman played in that USSR-England match on the next board with Ethan Geller. I asked him whether Miles had received permission from his team captain for such an eccentric opening experiment. Permission, Jonathan repeated. Tony Miles never asked anyone for permission for anything. He was one of the very best players in the world at that recent and distant time when there were no computers checking every move and every variation and no enormous databases with millions of games extractable at the push of a single key. That time, still so close and yet also so distant, now seems naive, primitive and even wild, just as the best players of those times seem as wild as wild could be. And they walked in the wet, wild woods by their wild loans. But the wildest of all the wild animals was the cat. He walked by himself, and all places were alike to him. Mm -hmm.